Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cowboys Noise Podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, and I am joined by our loyal co-host, Lena Ben Abdallah. Lena, how are you doing? Hello, doing well. Pretty good. We have a few salads in front of us. Yep. And today's episode is rather unique. We are having a special live show from the gorgeous Sheraton San Diego Hotel Marina, which is the site of this year's African Studies Association annual meeting, a multi-day gathering of some of the best Africanist scholars in the world, and myself. We are recording live, in person, which means that all manner of things will probably go wrong, but we will make up for that with our witty repartee, I hope, perhaps. Uh, And Lena, how is your hotel room? It's good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. I, is the view nice? It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I. It, it's a shame. There's an audio format because if, if you saw what we were seeing now, you would. You would want to do Af- China Africa podcast too. <laughs> um, today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa on a quest to help diversify development. It highlights the voice and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. And we are continuing to discuss the sixth forum on China-Africa cooperation, or FOCAC, for the rest of the month. FOCAC will be held in two weeks, December 4th through 5th, in Johannesburg, South Africa. For historical context, FOCAC was initiated in 2000 in Beijing in order to scratch out a three-year cooperation plan between China and the countries of Africa. Since then, the triennial meetings have alternated between China and African country. This week, we will connect FOCAC to China-Africa security issues, and to that end, we are incredibly fortunate to have on the pod Ambassador David Shin, who is U.S. Ambassador to Ethiopia and Burkina Faso. He is currently an adjunct professor of international affairs at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs and co-authored China and Africa, A Century of Engagement with Professor Joshua Eisenman, which was published in 2012 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. And Ambassador Shin, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Winslow. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Lena in uh, beautiful Harbor Island and uh, the outskirts of San Diego. We will fly you to San Diego for every pod thereafter. Huh. <laughs> be, care- be careful. <laughs> um, and before we get into today's topic, could you tell us about your latest book, which is not actually China Africa related? Well, the latest book is um, on a rather unusual topic. It deals with the the Gulen movement in Africa, also known as Hizmet, which is the Turkish word for service. And the focus of it is uh, what the Hizmet organization is doing throughout Africa in terms of um, providing schools at the primary, middle, and secondary level, uh, Hizmet dialogue centers, business activities by Turkish businessmen. And it, it, it all is in the context of uh, followers of Fatula Gulen, who, is, who has been living in exile in rural Pennsylvania uh, for the last 10 years plus. And he, as a matter of fact, is um, on the outs with the AKP government in Turkey at the moment, but was previously um, more or less aligned with the AKP government. But um, my focus is not on Turkey and it's not on Gulen philosophy, it's on what they are doing in Africa. How many books like this are out there? Uh, one. That's mine. <laughs> so if you're interested in this topic, buy like three or four copies of this book. <laughs> it's a really interesting topic. In fact, there are act- they are actually active in Algeria as well. And it's, um, 
there are actually schools that are kind of uh, modeled after the is it Fatih schools um, in Turkey? Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah they are. Mm -hmm. well, tr tremendous and, and shows the the range of the master Shin's interests and his mm -hmm. um, his intelligence and and knowledge that he can process so much information. Uh, at least range of interest. I don't know about the intelligence part. <laughs> okay. Um, and yeah, so uh, turning towards the China-Africa topic, um, uh, FOCAC is coming up. Um, so our question would be uh, if you um, could give an overview of the current state of China-Africa security relations. Um, in particular, we are interested in talking about what China is, uh, what kind of issues China is uh, concerned with. Um, we um, hear and we read in the news um, about China's increasing interest and, and also pressure to protect uh, Chinese interests and the Chinese nationals uh, abroad and mostly in, uh, in Africa. And so there have been also, you know, parts in the news about kidnappings, about attacks against Chinese nationals um, and, and other issues, you know, related to security. So um, what are some of the issues that you think or foresee will be uh, brought up in the FOCAC um, or issues that, that are central to China-Africa security relations? Well, let me first <clears throat> mention one of the more traditional engagements of China in Africa in the security field, uh, one that um, China has been engaged in since the mid-1990s and continues to take very seriously. And it's a positive contribution. It's support for United Nations peacekeeping in Africa. Uh, China is now the uh, contributor of the largest number of uh, troops to African UN peacekeeping operations of any member of the UN Security Council. Now, it's, in, it's important to point out that there are a number of other countries that have far larger mm -hmm. contributions to uh, UN peacekeeping in Africa. Uh, for example, uh, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, mm -hmm. India particularly, mm -hmm. and even Ethiopia does. Uh, so, in that context, uh, China is not <clears throat> one of the largest, but in terms of the Security Council, it is the largest. And it's constantly uh, been increasing its engagement in African peacekeeping, mm -hmm. and not only increasing it, but changing the nature of it um, until its most recent contribution to Mali a little over a year ago, all of the peacekeepers that China assigned to Africa were in the category of medical personnel, engineering personnel, logisticians, in other words, all non-combat. Non -combat. Mm -hmm. And it was only when they assigned an additional increment to Mali, uh, which turned out to be an armed guard force mm -hmm. that was effectively guarding the uh, UN peacekeeping uh, headquarters, but they were combat troops that, that do this. And that changed the mold of, of Chinese peacekeeping in Africa. And then it took a significant uh, further change in that direction when China agreed to send a 700-person uh, combat battalion to the peacekeeping operation in South Sudan. And that dramatically changed the complexion of uh, Chinese peacekeeping in Africa. And I think it's safe to say that one of the, the main reasons for making that change in Sudan is that China has a very significant interest in oil in both South Sudan and Sudan. Uh, they've had to evacuate uh, some of their uh, personnel, oil working personnel in South Sudan. And I think they felt more comfortable 
having uh, Chinese combat troops in the vicinity should there be any future need to, uh, uh, to bring them into play. Now, that's not the purpose of the assignment of these peacekeepers, but nevertheless, they are combat, they are Chinese, and they are there. And if push were to come to shove, uh, I would assume that they would be put into play for some reason. Mm -hmm. So that uh, engagement in peacekeeping remains a very important one, and as I say, it's a positive contribution. It's one that has been even acknowledged by the United States as um, something that has been useful for Africa and has been useful for UN peacekeeping purposes. Uh, I should probably also mention one other older engagement uh, in the security area where China's been involved, also in the positive category, and that is um, providing uh, two frigates and a supply ship uh, to the uh, Somali anti-piracy operation in the Gulf of Aden going back to late 2008. Uh, China is still engaged in that, and it has committed in the most recent um, uh, defense white paper that came out earlier this year to continue that operation into the foreseeable future. And that, too, has been an operation, although the Chinese operate independent of the other navies uh, in the Gulf of Aden, but it has been um, uh, identified as, as a positive operation by the United States and by other participating countries. Mm -hmm. So those, I'm sure, will come up at least in passing at the next FOCAC <coughs> meeting, uh, but it's really a continuation of what they have been, what China has been doing for some years, and does not uh, does not really uh, signify any change. Um, there's um, the area that you were alluding to, the safety of Chinese personnel living in Africa, is the the newer topic in terms of security concerns by China, and it's not that the that the security concerns are all that new. They've been hanging around for at least a decade in that you have had uh, Chinese nationals come under attack in Sudan, for example, uh, oil workers. Uh, in the case of Sudan, it was um, Darfur opposition groups who decided that they did not like the idea of, of China engaging in the development of oil that allowed the government in Khartoum to um, earn money to buy arms and other equipment, so they went out after the uh, the Chinese oil personnel. And there were cases where several, a number of them were kidnapped, and a few of them were killed in an effort to release them. Uh, you had a similar situation uh, in the Ogaden area of Ethiopia when the Ogaden National Liberation Front attacked a, um, a Chinese operation in the Ogaden that was exploring for, for gas and oil. Uh, even though they were protect protected by Ethiopian troops, uh, and the attack was really aimed at the Ethiopian troops, the Chinese um, workers got caught in the middle, and nine were killed in that operation. You've had other cases in the Gulf of Guinea, uh, going back to an earlier time frame when Chinese nationals have been kidnapped and ransomed. Uh, you had a, a case uh, just a little over a year ago in northern Cameroon, where 10 Chinese construction workers were um, kidnapped by Boko Haram and uh, ultimately released, but presumably ransom was paid. Uh, there's been no acknowledgment of ransom. Mm -hmm. uh, so these cases are have been around for some years, and with each new case, there has been greater concern on the Chinese side. And I think the real tipping point 
was going back to 2011, when you had 36,000 Chinese nationals evacuated out of Libya uh, after the fall of Gaddafi, and the country basically fell apart at the seams, and it had nothing to do with China. It just happened that you had 36,000 Chinese in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they all had to be evacuated, and they were, and it was a successful evacuation. But I think China put all of these issues together in, in recent years and said, we're clearly confronting a situation that we have to do more about, if for no other reason than netizens in China are, are complaining about um, the willingness and the ability of the government of China to take care of its own uh, in Africa. And as a result, I think there have been a whole series of steps that China has set in motion to protect security, some of which impact the FOCAC, some of which do not. And for our, our listeners' knowledge, what what is the context by which China is um, reluctant to 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 do anything militarily in, in Africa? I, I, I we speaking might know why, but let our listeners know, and and maybe some of the domestic um, Chinese policy concerns regarding <coughs> protecting Chinese nationals abroad. Well, I think it plays into several things. One is um, non-interference in the internal affairs of African countries. One is support for national sovereignty. Uh, China has always taken the position that the safety of its personnel in Africa is the responsibility of the African governments in any particular country. And that's all well and good as long as it works. But when it breaks down, as it obviously did in Libya, <coughs> where you effectively had no government, or as it did in, in Darfur, when, a, when rebel groups went out after the Chinese nationals and the government in Khartoum could do nothing about it or it couldn't stop it in any event. Or even in Ethiopia where you had um, Ethiopian troops guarding the Chinese personnel but someone miscalculated and the Ogadani National Liberation Front uh, managed to, to carry out a sizable attack. So when they, they got to the point where they realized that they could not always rely on, on the host government, uh, I think they've decided they have to start looking at other measures in order to deal with this threat. And that's why there's been this huge reassessment of, um, of policy. And as I say, some of it has to do with interaction with Africans, some of it does not. Some of it is as simple as doing better risk assessment and concluding that, you know, maybe there are some areas in Africa where we should not encourage or even allow Chinese nationals to go. Uh, ten years ago, I don't think there was anywhere in Africa where there was any effort to discourage uh, a Chinese presence on the continent. Today, uh, I think that's not the case, and I think that there will quietly, behind the scenes, be an effort by the government to say to a, a state-owned company or even a private company, uh, certainly a, a governmental organization, that, look, that area is really off-limits now, and you, you shouldn't go there. And they're doing more risk assessment. They're, they're engaging more with their embassies overseas to try to identify uh, those areas that are riskier and soliciting, I think, the advice of their embassies where you should and should not be engaged. And if you are engaged in a relatively risky area, what steps should you take to avoid getting in harm's way? So I, I think there's been a fairly massive uh, effort, uh, quiet behind the scenes in China to come up with a more effective policy for where the Chinese nationals appear in Africa 
and where they don't appear, acknowledging that you don't have 100% control over private individuals who decide to go and set up a business wherever they, they please. And um, there's not much the government can do about that. Yeah, um, and segueing into um, a little bit of the more recent events uh, in terms of sort of the fight against um, extremism, um, I'm just curious to get your thoughts about, you know, whether you envision China being involved with this at all in the future. I mean, you know, we have this threat, uh, you know, from ISIS, threat from several extremist groups, uh, you know, taking hostages here and there in foreign, you know, mostly um, places, you know, with, with large uh, uh, diaspora or foreign uh, concentration and, you know, Chinese nationals are going to be bound to, 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 to be part of these um, uh, incidents. And so I wonder if, so far, China has not been part of this big sort of move in uh, fighting, you know, extremism and terrorism, but is it something that we will see China being more involved in, or is it, what do you think about it, that? It is, and I think you've already seen the beginning of that in terms of the last one or two FOCAC meetings where, for the first time, China has made public reference to the need to collaborate more closely mm -hmm. with African governments on uh, things like counterterrorism. Right. Now, I, I think they're talking more in terms of intelligence sharing, uh, maybe some training of African uh, units that do this sort of thing, perhaps providing some specialized equipment uh, to African countries that um, don't really have the capacity they, they need to, to deal with terrorist activities. But the fact that these have become public references in FOCAC documents recently uh, suggests to me you're going to have more of that in this upcoming FOCAC meeting than you have had in past meetings. And I, I think where the, the Chinese have a, a bit of a dilemma is that so far it's been mainly Western countries and particularly the U.S that has been interacting with the African countries on counterterrorism issues, for better or worse. And China does not want to get too close mm -hmm. to what the U.S. and the West is doing because China doesn't always agree mm -hmm. with the tactics um, or maybe even the purpose of what the West is doing. Uh, the West is doing it with a, uh, with a or the U.S. is doing it with a major uh, military facility in Djibouti, for example, 4,000 personnel. They're focused primarily on counterterrorism. Mm -hmm. I think China would be very loath to have anything like that uh, in Djibouti or anywhere else at this point in time, and they don't particularly want to be associated with that kind of an effort. So they're they're sort of weighing um, the the risks on the one hand to their to their nationals and the degree to which the African governments can. Uh, ensure the safety of these personnel and the need for doing more on their side. And I think they prefer to do it by interacting directly with the African governments rather than getting involved in any kind of international, international uh, ar arrangement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that may, that may pose a bit of a dilemma at some point because in some cases I'm not sure the African governments are just in a, in a position to do much more. I mean, Boko Haram, for example, um, I think they are probably reached their capacity. Now, the U.S. sent um, 200 advisors into northern Cameroon uh, to help deal with Boko Haram. That's a pretty weighty step 
Uh, I don't see China doing that sort of thing, certainly not in the foreseeable future. But it wasn't Americans who were captured in northern Cameroon. It was 10 Chinese construction workers who were captured. So at some point, you know, China has got to, they've got to weigh the, the pluses and the minuses of these heavier tactics and whether they, um, they do something similar, maybe on their own, maybe something totally separate that China would do with Nigeria or with Cameroon or with Chad. Uh, it doesn't have to be in collaboration with the U.S. if they're, if they're concerned about what the U.S. might do. But these, these issues are getting uh, stickier and stickier as, as we uh, uh, have, have witnessed very recently with the attack on the uh, hotel in, um, in, uh, in Mali. Um, anybody can be in harm's way in these situations. I mean, you had a Chinese national who happened to be in the uh, Westgate Mall in Kenya and was killed in that attack. Just wrong place, wrong time. And I understand there may be um, one Chinese national involved in the Mali attack. That is going to happen more and more often when you have a million-plus Chinese nationals scattered around the continent of Africa. It's, it's going to happen. And you, you know, as a government, you have to take account of that. And if nothing else, you have to take account of the netizens back home who are going to take account and, of it. And, and netizens refer to uh, Chinese Internet users who um, the Chinese government watches very closely. So it's really, it's really interesting to be in China's position when it comes to interfering in security issues in Africa because on the one hand, if they don't do anything or the Chinese government does not get engaged in it, it gets this blame, you know, by netizens or by international organizations or by NGOs or by X or Y, right? But then at the same time, if they start, you know, getting involved, then they, you always run the risk of, of having people critici criticizing the, the fact that they're engaging insecurity relations and issues in, in Africa and sort of trying to to just, you know, say that, that non-interference policy and uh, it doesn't hold, you know, uh, anymore and stuff. So it's, it's a kind of a tricky situation. Well, it's a balancing in. act. And in, in the case of both China and the United States, whatever you do, you have to be sure you have the, the agreement and the cooperation of the host African host government. And, and China's well aware of that, right. as is the United States. But I think China would see the U.S. as being more aggressive than it, it China wants to be, mm. and that's the big dilemma. Uh, that does raise another issue that maybe you want to come back to later, but this whole uh, question of Chinese naval expansion in the Western Indian Ocean, this is a huge new field that's coming up, and it's already there. I mean, the number of, of naval port visits has increased astronomically. In, ever since China's been involved in the anti-piracy operation in the Gulf of Aden. And, and it looks to me like um, they have every intention of uh, further increasing their engagement in the Western Indian Ocean. And then the issue is, how do you support that? I mean, ships just can't come you know, sailing across the ocean blue and, and expect to be supported unless arrangements have been made in, um, in various, or various ports along the Indian Ocean Rim. And this is another, I think, mm -hmm. uh, significant dilemma for China as it becomes a, a global maritime power. And it has stated in its defense white paper it wants to become a global maritime power. This is this is Chinese policy. Through the, the maritime Silk Road and the strings of fur. There, there's that too. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, a lot of that is very fuzzy uh, as, it, as it impacts Africa. Uh, it's not clear to me how that is going to impact Africa. But it's certainly part of the dialogue and part of the rhetoric. 
and it plays into it, and it, it probably, at a minimum, means more commercial shipping. And more commercial shipping means protecting those shipping lanes. And China would rather protect those shipping lanes and its ships with its own navy, not with the American navy or the Indian navy, because those are the alternatives. Absolutely. Is there any way you see China painting itself into a corner in terms of how it manages nationalism and nationalistic expectations? So the South China Sea, for example, you know, sovereign Chinese territory. But when, um, but as China expands its maritime reach overseas, as the, as as Chinese citizens do not accept that Chinese nationals will be killed abroad, and the Chinese government can't do anything about it, even though China will say we protect our people. Uh, are, is there any chance that China pays itself into a corner and get? No, you raise a, you raise an interesting point, and I must confess I haven't thought this one through. Um, I, I mean. I sort of separate the South China yeah, Sea issue. I, I, I'm, I, you don't. Um, you, we will not actually talk about the South China Sea because we don't want to get too. Well, it, it's just that I hadn't. I hadn't really thought about it in the context of what, what the implications could be, in a policy sense, for say the Western Indian Ocean, and and there may very well be some, but I'd, I'd really have to give that some serious thought. Um, it it may it, it may play into the psyche of uh, of the average. Uh, Chinese national in some important way that that I just don't understand well enough uh, to really comment on intelligently. Yeah, and and just to be clear, I'm not saying the South China Sea issue will extend anywhere past the Ch South China Sea. I'm just no, but it, it probably does have some psychological implications that are more important than I've ever thought about. Um, and but I I'll probably have to leave it at that because I I, I just would need to think it through. Okay, and. We're going to try and steer back a little bit towards FOCAC in particular. Is FOCAC actually used to address China-Africa security issues? Uh, what are the usual mechanisms with which China and the countries of Africa engage with security? And what are the differences be between bilateral and multilateral engagements? Especially with AU, AU-China relations. Um, and and yeah, and Africa has a bunch of um, regional economic and, and, and military groups, ECOMOG, uh, ECOWAS, yeah. etc. I, I really think that everything considered, the the most important relationship that China has with with Africa is the bilateral relationship with individual nations, and that FOCAC is more of of an umbrella organization for overseeing broad policy, and not for getting down into the weeds too far. I mean, they will announce that. Uh, in the next year, there will be 5,000 scholarships for African uh, students um, and that kind of thing. But it's never broken down by country, and, and it would be pointless to do that in a FOCAC context. So I think FOCAC can serve the purpose, uh, particularly among Africans, of trying to at least identify those broad areas where they think more attention needs to be paid and one of them could very well be security. Uh, the Africans will not see it so much from the standpoint of protecting Chinese nationals around the continent. That's not going to be their focus. It's going to be uh, their own security interests, and in some cases those security interests uh, might be contrary to where China would like to be. Uh, in other words, um, 
providing the kind of support to prop up the government that, you know, it might be a little bit uncomfortable doing too much propping up. At least Western governments would certainly feel that way. China might maybe less so. But there's, there's obviously going to be a, um, a dialogue here, a, a give and take, on what, what China wants out of the security issue and what the Africans want out of it. I'm sure the Africans want more military equipment. Well, as it happens, China is the largest uh, provider of military equipment to, um, to, uh, to Sub-Saharan Africa today and is likely to hold that Could title. you define military equipment so people don't think they're armed alone? They're not well, I'm, I am talking about um, essentially about two categories of, of armament. I'm talking about conventional weapons, which is the bigger stuff, you know, everything from an armored personnel carrier to a, a towed artillery piece to an aircraft. China is selling military aircraft yes. now to tanks. I mean, all, all this big stuff. And the, the numbers on that are pretty, pretty widely available, and they're tracked pretty carefully. It's, it's not that hard with satellite photography uh, to monitor the big stuff. The other category is small arms and light weapons, and that nobody can track. Uh, these are the the uh, Chinese version of the Kalashnikov and, and uh, mortars, anything that, that one person can uh, can basically uh, utilize, uh, an RPG, um, all the and, small stuff. And, and, and to be fair, the, the, the Chinese government sometimes doesn't have as much control over um, arms sales as people might think. Uh, uh, the South Sudan, Norinco, um, switcheroo a few months ago where they, they said they they a, a deal was in the works. It was canceled, but the deal went through, and then the, the Chinese government had to had to tell the, the supplier Norinco, "Hey." Um, yeah, although I, I believe I may be mistaken, but I believe Norinco was a state-owned company. It, it is a state-owned company, but yeah. it, but the China it was a, there was an agreement, I believe, to supply South Sudan with a, however many. It was thirty-eight million dollars yeah. worth of, of military equipment, and some of it was actually delivered. I think this was a case where the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Uh, because theoretically, with a state-owned company, you, you should have control over that. Now, if it were a totally private company, that would be another matter. If it were material that were bought on the international arms market, well, sure, China can't control that. And some of the, of the sales do come in that direction. But in the small arms and light weapons category, I would guess that China provides uh, an even larger percentage of what is going into Africa today and in the case of conventional weapons, and in the case of conventional weapons, it's about 25% of the total transfers going into sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so in this case, China is a major player. And it, it is incumbent, I think, upon China to try to maintain at least some controls as to what happens to this material once it is delivered to an African government. Because we know in the case of, of Sudan that it went to Khartoum, and some of it was immediately transferred to the Janjaweed. Mm -hmm. And the Janjaweed used it for ethnic cleansing. And basically the Chinese position was, hey, we, it was a legal agreement between us and Khartoum. And once that happens, you know, we, what do we know about it? We, we can't control that. And in a sense, they're correct. But on the other hand, they are in a position to put an end to that sort of thing once it becomes identified as a problem. Yeah, and this is where it gets very, very tricky for a country like China. The Western countries do try to, to prevent those kinds of, of transfer, internal transfers uh, after the legal transfer is over. And, and this is an area where I think, too, there may be some discussion 
at FOCAC. I don't know how much interest there is in this in the FOCAC context. I mean, these are African governments, after all, that are importing this equipment. And they may, they may want to have the authority or the ability to transfer to their best rebel friends in a neighboring country if, if that opportunity should arise. So maybe there won't be much pressure on China. Any predictions for FOCAC before we move to recommendations? Um, well, only that this is only the second of six FOCAC uh, summit meetings. In other words, all of the four of the previous, um, uh, or this would be, the fifth. yeah, for, yeah. The, well, the, the previous five. So this is the sixth coming up. This is the sixth, the sixth coming up. But one, one, one of the previous ones in 2006 was at the summit level, the chief of state level. Right. And this is only the second one at the chief of state level, a head of government and, level. And Dr. Wakesa was trying to say, is this like the sixth FOCAC or the second FOCAC because of the conference oh, versus the conference summit? Well, it's, it's the, I think it's considered to be the sixth. The um, sixth, yeah. Uh, I mean, but it, it, it's the sixth, but it's the second uh, in a group of, of, of the high-level summits. Um, so in that sense, one assumes that it will have uh, more coming out of it than than most of the previous FOCACs other than the one in 2006. Um, maybe not. Maybe it'll be pretty much in the line of, of the ministerial-level FOCACs. But I, I would think that um, that will be one of the, of the differences here. Uh, the... I think there will be somewhat greater focus on security <coughs> issues than on previous in previous FOCACs, just because that has become a, a more difficult topic for China. Um, as far as other uh, predictions about this FOCAC, I, I guess I'd be reluctant to, to identify uh, anything that I think is particularly new or unusual. I, I think most of it will be more of the same. Excellent. Well, we are moving on to recommendations. Ambassador Shin, do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Well, my primary recommendations would be to the Africans themselves. Um, it's important that they exercise more African agency in, in these sessions, really in the run-up to FOCAC. I mean, once you have FOCAC, it. it's pretty much all over and yep. done with. It. It, it's all been settled and agreed upon. Mm -hmm by the time you sit down around the table and the president signed the document. So in a sense, I'm, what I'm saying now is is probably too late and it should be for the next FOCAC. But still, I would, I would aim my, um, my arguments at the Africans that they, they need to become more unified on some of their concerns as they impact China. For example, if they are concerned about environmental practices of Chinese uh, companies in Africa, they, they should be able to come up with a, a set of guidelines that they as individual governments can agree upon, present those to China and other countries, not just China, and say this is what we think ought to be the case in terms of, of dealing with the environment, and we, we urge you, in this case China, uh, to follow them and to incorporate them in, ideally into your own legislation. Uh, and uh, as far as uh, Chinese companies interact with Africa. So I'd like to see more initiative coming out of the, uh, the African side. Um, some of this could be done by, by um, sort of African think tanks or, or a select group of African um, uh, leaders on certain topical issues 
This is all work that has to be done a year or so in advance at the African Union, presumably. And the African Union has done some of this. I've seen some of it. It's very good work. Uh, but they need to do it, I think, particularly in connection with the FOCAC meetings or uh, the same with the meetings at the head of state or, or the ministerial level with India uh, or any of the other series Summits. of meetings like this. It doesn't have to be confined to China. And, but the impetus has to come from the African side. And if it doesn't, it's just not going to happen. Um, I, I think there are some issues like um, arms transfers and, and better monitoring of, um, uh, of weapons once they are turned over to African governments, better monitoring by China. And this may be tricky with the Africans. They may say, we don't want you to monitor those arms. <laughs> well, maybe here China has to say, look, it's in the interest of Africa to do a better job of monitoring. And when we sell them to you, uh, we expect you to keep them, use them and keep them, not to transfer them somewhere else where they shouldn't be. And that's going to uh, make the Chinese, I think, a little nervous because they're, they're not used to sort of uh, dictating what, what happens in a case like this. But maybe the time has come to think along those lines. But uh, as I say, most of the initiative has to come from the African side. And uh, and I think Lena and I can both make a joint recommendation. The Sheraton San Diego Hotel and Marina is a lovely hotel. And I hope that anybody from the Sheraton is listening to this in case they want to sponsor the podcast. But we are sitting outside with a gorgeous view of the, of the marina and a bunch of overpriced sailboats that we'll probably never be able to afford unless <laughs> we get that sweet, sweet Norinco money. And... Yeah, I, 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 I've had a very lovely stay in the hotel so far, and we'll see what happens through, through Sunday. Um, before we sign off, how do people find you on the Internet, Ambassador Shin? Do you have a website or Twitter account that you'd like to share with us? I do, I do have a blog, and normally if you just go to Google and put, type my name in, it'll be the first thing that shows up. Uh, if not, it's on Blogspot. And the blog covers a combination of China, Africa, the Horn of Africa, and to some extent, uh, Turkey, Africa. And you were probably the, the most prolific China Africa blogger out there. You you put out something every day or every other day, and um, really terrific work. And and the blog is connected to your Twitter account, um, which is uh, at uh, A M B S H I N N M M Shin Ambassador Shin, uh, which which you should follow, which tracks the blog, but I don't believe you use much to interact with people. I don't. It, it's, it's really just for announcing blog postings. So if, if, if you try to, to communicate with Ambassador Shin through Twitter, you might want to direct yourself to, towards his blog instead. Right. Correct. And, and there's and a newsletter that the blog comes Well, it's not, not a newsletter per se. Or a um, sign up? Uh, you can sign, sign up, and, um, and some people have done that. But I think most people just just have a, an interest in it and, and periodically go there. I get the emails every day. <laughs> but so yeah, you can find me on Twitter for uh, myself. It, my handle is at uh, L Ben Abdallah. I mean, you'll usually link it um, to the blog, right? Yes. Uh, and I can be found at uh, carriesrice.blogspot.com and www.carriesrice.com, which again, is housing the fledgling China-African solvency I'm trying to figure out what to do with. In addition, my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R, and I tweet about China-African <coughs> news, events, opinions, and arcana. And 
That is about it for today's episode. We'd like to thank Ambassador Shin for joining us this lovely afternoon and um, making time while he eats lunch. Uh, we ambushed him, essentially. And we would like to thank African Development Jobs. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Double Twist, and iTunes. We are also teaming up with WTND Community Radio from Macomb, Illinois, to share our podcast. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. And I would just like to add by thanking uh, Winslow and Lena for, um, for hearing uh, me out during this lunch, the nice lunch period. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Oh, that's great. Thanks a lot, Julia. This was sure. really nice.